Shalom and peace, y'all. Welcome to the final episode of the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast, where two Texas clergy from two different faiths talk about everything from clergy burnout to how much Blue Baker wants to retroactively sponsor our entire show. I'm Rabbi Matt. And I'm Reverend Dan, and this podcast is proof that peace is possible. So this is uh, unfortunately the last episode of the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast. I am, um, yes, indeed, hiss as well. Um, thank you, loyal listeners, for, for your, your listening. And um, I am leaving the beautiful Brazos Valley in College Station for Los Angeles. I'm, uh, I'm going to be moving to California, back where I come from, uh, for a, a period of reflection. I don't know what I'm going to be doing yet. But um, I hope to figure that out. And uh, I, I experienced a, a, a period of a very stressful last year. And uh, so today, today's show is going to be focused on clergy burnout and uh, how, how it impacts us as clergy. It's fitting that we're talking about it, too, because, again, you good, loyal listeners, I know that you have made note of the fact that it's been some time since our last episode. And a lot of it has right. to do with just everything that's going on in our professional and personal lives, things happening in the world and how all of that intersects. And it's difficult to just sit down and record a podcast because we don't want to just talk to spin our wheels. We really right. have tried to sit down and come up with things that can be constructive and get us thinking, not just us, but everybody listening mm-hmm. in. And um, we feel like we've been gaining some traction with it. And so we're sad to be signing off, so to speak, but, uh, it's been fun while it's, while it has, it's lasted. Yeah. This is the, the series finale to the Reverend Dan <laughs> the one Rabbi, Matt podca- <laughs> Rabbi Matt podcast after just one season. Um, but yeah, so in our first episode, we began by just introducing ourselves to all of you, letting you know what we do and how we got here to the Brazos Valley, serving um, as clergy people in this peculiar setting of Aggieland Indeed. that we love. And, uh, but we haven't, in that time or since, really talked with each other about some of the deep stuff that we occasionally get the chance to talk with each other about around the water cooler, but... Right sell them with the people that we serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just about what we love about being clergy people mm-hmm. and what we find most challenging about it. Right. So there's a lot of different ways to eat this elephant, my friend. Absolutely. Well, why don't we just, why don't we just jump in? And um, you, know, you mentioned things that we love about the role. And um, it was, it's really about those relationships, either within the community or outside the Jewish community that have really been inspirational, my relationship with you and, and other clergy in the community who've been so incredibly welcoming. I mean, I was, I was in a bubble in seminary in Los Angeles, and um, I'll be returning to that bubble, bubble of Jews, where I really didn't have <laughs> much outside contact with, with the non-Jewish community. And uh, I regret that I didn't spend as much time learning about other faiths in seminary as we probably should have. But my dean once said, there's 10 years of material I'd love to include in our, in our curriculum. 
And, you know, that wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. And I, I totally understand that. I spent six years. And um, it takes that long just to learn the tip of the iceberg of the Jewish tradition. But once I came here, I, I started learning a lot more about Christianity, especially thanks to the CPE class I took at the local hospital and working with uh, some Catholic and Protestant clergy in that class. I, oh, yeah. The main thing I did was... One of my main goals was to read the New Testament for the first time, and I did, and learned a lot from it. And so, yeah, it, it's really about the relationships. How about you? How about you? I'd say the same thing. It. I try to stress often that when it comes to community in general, mm-hmm. but definitely one of the tenets of Christianity, um, with Christian community, we need to stress relationships. And the more we deepen them and authenticate them, mm-hmm. then the stronger uh, we are as a community or what we would call the body of Christ. Um, the church, as we try to remind ourselves often at Friends Congregational, where I serve, is not the building, it's the people. And uh, at the risk of that sounding cliche, getting back to the, the theology of it, we, we are attempting to serve as the body of Christ. And you can't do that without trust, without um, consistency, Mm -hmm. showing up to the table. I mean, another way to describe us is we're a covenant people. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely what we share in common between our respective religions. We're a covenant people, but being a covenant people means you got to show up. Mm -hmm. And similarly in Judaism, there's a lot of things we can't do without what's called a minion and 10 Jewish adults in uh, very observant communities. That's considered just to be 10 men above the age of 13, 13 and up. Okay. And uh, in the Reform and Conservative movement, it's men and women, egalitarian. And um, there's certain prayers that can only be said. You know, for a funeral, you need to have the 10. For just about any life cycle event, you need to have the 10 people so the blessings can be said. And that, that represents community, the minimum number for a community. I remember you talking about that, too, with one of the challenges... Mm-hmm. with you being here that kind of informed your calling was that you wanted to be at Texas A&M right. LL so that you could not only increase the number of Jewish students that would come to Texas A&M, but also um, get students who could read Torah right, um, and be able to lead those services. Exactly. And uh, that's certainly been one of the challenging aspects of the job over the past four years. But I think the university is headed in the right direction. And I think my successors will also help to, to lead Hillel and the university in that direction. I, I definitely made my points known <laughs> to the administration, and um, I think that'll reverberate like like waves in the pond. I hope so. Come. I'll do what I can to remind Thank them. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you talked about relationships, but what right. else? What do you love about being a rabbi? Not just in this setting, but mm-hmm. in general. What do you love about being a rabbi? I really, I really love being there for families during life cycle events, you know, that's whether it's good life cycle events or not so good life cycle events, just being able to enter into that liminal space with a family and be present for them and help guide them through a birth, a life transition, or unfortunately a death. And, um, that's, it's a very rewarding, very powerful, very humbling experience to be at that point. And, um, it's definitely one of the most rewarding and powerful aspects of the job. Yeah. It's one of the things that I love about serving as a pastor is that that same thing of of being present, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's also a challenge though that we minister types sometimes 
don't figure out is right. that when it comes to those those life events, mm-hmm. be they the most joyful things or, uh, God forbid, the most devastating things, right. we want to fix everything mm-hmm. or be as appropriate as we can or say the most eloquent thing, and uh, that negates simply being present. Right. And from a Christian perspective, I've heard of it referred to as being an incarnational presence. Hmm. So in talking about Jesus being the incarnate Word of God, um, God made flesh, the embodiment of God on earth with His ministry, we who follow Him and and serve, especially as clergy, Mm -hmm. are uh, summoned to be an incarnational people when it comes to those precarious, joyful events that happen in our lives, those milestone events. Right. I, um, I came to appreciate the ability to clear my schedule for a life cycle event, that it just becomes instantaneous. Everything gets thrown out the window and you focus on helping the family, especially in the case of a, of a death and a, and a funeral. You, you, you get to clear it out. You get to be there with the family. You get to minister to them and, and just... One term I learned in in uh, an ancillary program to rabbinical school, I volunteered with the city of Los Angeles crisis response team while I was in L.A. and um, responded to tragic incidents, um, unusual fatalities, anything where the coroner was called to kind of sit there with the family and wait until the coroner arrived. And in Los Angeles County, that could take quite some time, unfortunately. But we learned about sacred silence, and it's kind of how I frame that ministry of presence. I love that. Sacred silence. That's great. Yeah. Because you, you, you don't want to fill, you don't need to fill the space with words. You don't need to fix things with your words or with your actions. You just need to be present. You just need to sit with the family and be there with them. And that contradicts so much of what we encounter on a day-to-day basis is just filling all of that space. Exactly. Silence is scary. Yeah, it is. Especially for introverts that are gathered for worship in one space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got a friend named Kyle Walker, and he once served here in this community as a campus minister. He served United Campus Ministry in Aggieland, and he's now a a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Austin. Mm -hmm. But he came here in 1999 when the bonfire collapse Mm -hmm. happened, or it it happened soon after he had started here. And that informed so much of his ministry because he was asked to dig in um, during a catastrophic event Mm -hmm. that no one could have possibly prepared for. And just like we're talking about, he found that there were no words. You Mm -hmm. simply have to be there. And he made himself as accessible and present as possible. And that gave him the building blocks he needed to um, get his ministry started here in Aguilar. And uh, and we really move forward. I was the president of the Campus Ministry Association for the last year, and we really move forward in terms of that emergency response role of chaplains. God forbid, should something else happen, like like bonfire. Oh wow! Where, you know, campus ministers now have official IDs to identify them on a scene, and we met with the emergency preparedness folks on campus for one of our meetings. And uh, you know, there's still more work to be done, but I'm glad the campus is including campus ministers as part of their thinking for for major events, to have campus ministers present. So what would you say is one of the most challenging things Mm. for you being a rabbi? 
Um, it's the it's the non-rabbinic work that kind of ends up being a little bit challenging and demoralizing. Mm. Um, uh, it's the building management. It's the uh, administrative work kind of stuff. It's the fundraising. It's the budgeting. Um, that all has to be done. But I really found my balance to be off, and I was spending a lot more time administrating administering <laughs> than rabbiing. And uh, I think that's really what helped contribute to, to my burnout. Yeah. Was I wasn't, I wasn't doing enough studying and teaching. Um, and, uh, and that's not what I, that's not what I spent six years in seminary for. But it's what our people kind of come to expect. Don't you think? The administration aspect? Yeah. The, well, not just that. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is, mm-hmm. is the do-it-all Right. Jack approach. of all trades. Yes. Yeah. Jack of all trades. The fine print that they don't right. teach us anything about in seminary. Other duties as assigned, for exactly. sure. Yeah, managing the air conditioning system, the electrical system, <laughs> the, the um, uh, yeah, everything. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the expectation. And, uh, you know, I, I stepped into that role as executive director and rabbi of Hillel. Um, but I didn't realize how much executive directoring was involved, and so and not enough rabbiing for me. And so I tried to I tried to fill more time with rabbi things, and um, ended up really just working, especially the last couple of years, just working way too much, becoming a perfectionist, becoming a workaholic, and throwing everything I had into into the job and uh, spending spending way too much time yeah. on it. I share that challenge with different details, but mm-hmm. I think, as we say, the devil's in those details, right. uh, because for me, the temptation can be that even though you're spinning your wheels sometimes and doing right. things that don't leave enough mm-hmm. room for study and yeah. having your cup filled so that you can fill others, mm-hmm. uh, the temptation is that you... Th- you you look at that in terms of that's something you can measure, mm-hmm. and so right we we can measure the other stuff, but right. this is something we can measure, and so we're not going to stop until we get that task done. Exactly, it's something that can be crossed off. Mm-hmm. And I tried to measure. I mean, one of my goals has always been you know meet with meet with five students every week, and I never achieved that. I mean, okay, maybe sometimes, but. It shouldn't be that hard to do. And one of my favorite things to do at Hillel was my weekly tour of Thursdays, mostly, which took place at Blue Baker. And um, insert commercial here. Yeah. They're <laughs> going to sponsor this episode Last entirely. episode, absolutely. Right. Um, the mounting expenses of this podcast. <laughs> totally. Um, because I didn't have a huge turnout for it, but it was, it was a very rewarding experience because it forced me to study the weekly Torah reading and to prepare for it and teach that whether I had six people in attendance or one, and that's really what it ranged from. But, uh, but it was also for me too, to be able to, to be the rabbi I wanted to. And that's one of the, that is one of the things I, I like the most is to study. And, uh, you know, I hope that in, in the future that I'll be aware of that and make sure that whatever role I step into next will, will involve more, more study and more teaching of Torah. That's, that's really encouraging, and that's a good point for all of us clergy types is to reflect on the things that give us life in our ministry. Right. 
you asked me on another episode mm-hmm. when we were talking about the installation service for our associate pastor, Trent Williams. So what advice did you give him? Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I said was, do what matters. Right. Focus on what matters. And that's a very difficult thing to mm-hmm. explain to someone, right. uh, especially when you're starting out. Yeah. But we can, I think, work into our, our vocational discipline intentional reflection, Mm -hmm. be it looking back over the week, the month, or the year to find what are those things that really Mm -hmm. fulfilled me? You say what matters, and sometimes changing the toilet paper, sometimes managing the HVAC system, and sometimes ordering ordering food from a kosher supplier are the things that that really matter and have to get done. And um, they might not be exactly what I want to be doing, but the things that the rabbi needs to do. Right. If I can be so bold then, yeah. uh, wrapping up your tenure at mm-hmm. Hillel, yeah. what, I appreciate you sharing one of the things that you really loved about that time. Mm-hmm. Is there something, are, are there regrets that you have about that time? Um, and since I put you on the spot, yeah. um, I'll say from my perspective and looking back, I have regrets about... Um, taking things personally mm-hmm. and allowing that to affect my judgment. Right. I mean, that's along the same lines of just what are some of the biggest challenges and what we do in general. And it's just taking things personally. Uh, a friend of mine, a clergy peer said that there were, I can't remember the, the, the person who wrote it, but there's a book called uh, never take it personally, even if it's mm. meant to be that way, something <laughs> yeah. like that. It's true. Uh, it's but a good, it really, it's a good title, yeah. Yeah, it really can affect your judgment in ways where, in hindsight, you go, wow, that was just not me. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, uh, yeah. re- regrets. Um, yeah, I regret that I, I got to this point where I let myself get burnt out, that I didn't take better care of myself, that I didn't reach out for help. Um, you know, I know there's a ton of people who would have would have helped, um, and I was too self-obsessed or proud or uh, I said I said yes to way too many things these past four years. I I let I let yet yes be my default, and it ended up costing me. I'm but it was I'm but it was also it was it was rewarding and a lot of fun to be the rabbi in town. And to be able to say yes, to be asked. And it was an honor. It was an honor to be that person who was always on every panel and lecturing in every class as a guest lecturer. Um, those, those things were a lot of fun and rewarding. Um, but I said yes way too often and didn't take care of myself as a result. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. Let's talk about our, our faith. Mm-hmm. I was curious how Judaism has affected your life in terms of choices and outlook and temperament and ethics and any of all of the above. Um, well, how, has, how has it shaped you? you know, I grew up fairly secular, but you know, definitely from a, a Jewish family. You know, I, I call families like families of origin like my own gastronomic Jews who eat Jewish food at the appropriate times of the year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we didn't go to, we didn't even go to synagogue for the high holy days. We, we would light maybe six out of eight Hanukkah candles or something like that. But it was just, 
It was Jewish culture. It wasn't Jewish religion. And uh, so I wasn't exposed to that, but I was exposed to Jewish culture. And so it's, it's really, and my extended family especially, it's really, it's, it's made me everything who I am. You know, as a Jew, I'm totally immersed in, in everything Jewish, even without going to synagogue. You don't have to be observing. You don't have to be a believer. And if you're just Jewish and you have that background, you have that culture, you know, you're going to watch Schindler's List and every other Holocaust movie and read every Holocaust book and learn about Israel and um, eat matzo ball soup around Passover and just just do Jewish. And so you know, I think for me it's it's everything, but it's not been until I started becoming observant uh, over a decade ago, going to seminary that... Um, where I, I saw my decisions and my choices through a, a Jewish lens and through the lens of the tradition. Um, you know, I think that I like to think that my humorous and sarcastic nature comes from my Jewish background. Um, <laughs> I think it's genetic, but I don't know. I mean, there should be some kind of test for that. Um, you need to make sure that it says, I'm a six out of eight Hanukkah candles kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get it done before December. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's, it's permeated everything, I think. And I think that's true for, for agnostic Jews as well as fully observant Jews. For me, it's a, it's a constant transformation where if transformation isn't a central aspect mm-hmm. of one's Christian faith, then it's pretty empty. Um, I don't, it's difficult for me to describe uh, how that's affected me over time, but I can, I can definitely assert that I would not be making the choices that I have made, be mm-hmm. on the path that I am on, for better or worse, if it weren't for this thing called discipleship, where we right. walk with Christ and try to um, emanate mm-hmm. those values. But, well, back to us being a rabbi and pastor, mm-hmm. would you recommend being a rabbi to somebody? I, I would. I absolutely would. It's it's very incredibly fulfilling. You know, I'd love to I'd love to see my kids follow in my footsteps. Um you know, I hope that I know that I have a lot to learn still about the vocation and um need to improve and do better in round two and um and grow. And so you know, I know a lot of rabbi parent child sequences out there and um i think there's a lot of advice i could give to someone or to to my kids should they choose to to follow that path yeah how about you um somebody told me when i was considering a calling to the Mm -hmm. ministry who was himself someone who did not pursue that path but had flirted with it or allowed for it to flirt with him i guess i should say if you can think of anything else in life that you would rather do yeah. than pursue ministry, than to be a minister, rather, do that. And I heard that as kind of cryptic, mm-hmm. going, you know, be careful what you're getting into. Right. But I also heard it as uh, something that clearly looked at ministry as a set-aside 
vocation, something where you're going to have to not hold yourself to a higher standard per se, but a very different standard right. and be very intentional about it to look at yourself through that lens. And that's a constant process. Absolutely. It took me a long time to be able to try to understand how other people look at me as a minister mm-hmm. versus just, Hey, it's me, it's Dan. Right. Um, and even though I would like in some situations in my life to mm-hmm. be looked at as, Hey, it's just me, it's Dan. I, I need that. You and I both need to be looked at as just the human right. selves that we are. We also have to appreciate that most everywhere we go, uh, you're Rabbi Matt mm-hmm. and Absolutely. I'm Pastor Dan. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole lot that comes with that. Right. All right. Well, look, we're really excited because yes. our friend, Reverend Mindy Roll, is going to be our guest for this last episode of the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast. And we're going to talk with her a little bit about clergy burnout. Yay. What do you think? I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> She's one of the first people I met when I, when I got here, so it's very meaningful to, to have her our last episode. Exciting. Exciting. All right. Well, stick around. There is more of this great podcast coming your way. Welcome back to the Reverend Dan Rabbi Matt podcast. We've got our good friend, Reverend Mindy Roll, with us now. We're really excited to have you here, Mindy. And um, Matt, you in particular Absolutely. really wanted yeah. to have Mindy on the show. Right. So um, Mindy is one of the original four members of the God Squad. Oh, yeah. And uh, four of us campus ministers squad. met during my first year through so. second year, right after... Reverend Matt arrived at Canterbury, um, but Mindy is also the first clergy I met in the Brazos Valley because on my second or third day of work, I went over to her office at Canterbury House uh, because there's a sign outside that says Canterbury Cafe, and I didn't pack my lunch thinking that I could go over there to eat, and unfortunately, I found out there was no food. But so, we received you with hospitality. Yes, absolutely. So I remember that, and it's it's awesome, and so... And Mindy's been a dear friend in, in the past four years, so um, I really wanted her her on our show. And we needed to have a, a female voice. Yeah, me. absolutely. Because we've been wanting to do that for some time. Who wants to listen to two dudes talking all the time nope. about what it means to be a clergy? <laughs> Nobody. I think that's the reason why. That's the real reason why we're getting that's rid of the show. Declining audiences. <laughs> that's exactly. This show right. is finally going to be the one that people listen to. Yeah, no. we've just been we've just been fielding all of these complaints about it. Just you two guys. When are you going to get a female voice on here? So thankfully we do. Yes. Uh, but Reverend Mindy Roll, tell us about your ministry in this community. Start by telling us when you when you first got here and started serving the or before Lutheran students. Yeah, or before whatever. We're looking for context. Sure. Um, well, I'm finishing my seventh year here, um, and. What is that? 2010. Um, but that's not my first time here. I actually went to undergrad here at Texas A&M, got my degree here, swore I'd never come back after four years of living in College whoop. Station. There you go. I was waiting for you to say whoop. I can't do it. So. Oh, that's right. 
So I spent four years here, and then I went to seminary um, for uh, about six years. And then uh, the Synod said, hey, we have an opening in College Station. Uh, We'd like for you to consider it. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going back to College Station. (laughs) And they said, but it's Texas A&M, and Texas A&M is weird. And you're you're an insider. I thought it was normal. I thought you were supposed to keep College Station normal. Well, Well, that is why it is weird. I suppose. So they said we want an insider. Back up and tell me about Synod, though, because I want to, for folks who are listening who don't know about oh, sure. how the Lutheran Church is structured, tell us about that. So the Synod is just the geographical region of the church. Mm. So our church has 65 of them in the U.S., and we're over, each one is overseen by a bishop. So it's really the bishop staff that said, we have this opening in campus ministry. We think you're the one for it, and we'd like for you to consider it. Mm-hmm. So after... Uh, Several weeks of thinking, I finally said, all right, I'll interview for it. Um, but got here, it, it did the interview, loved it, loved it immediately, thought I could really, I could do this, maybe. Um, so came down in 2010, and I've been here ever since, about to start my eighth year wow. now. that's so, awesome. Yeah. So we serve, um, our group is maybe half Lutheran students, and then half students who just need a place to land. And so mm-hmm. they grew up in... Um, maybe more conservative religious faiths, and they're looking for a soft place to sort of rethink their faith, um, or they didn't grow up in the church at all, or they've had some sort of crisis in their life where they don't fit in their faith community. Um, so we have this really fun mix of students who, um, Lutheran students who want a deeper faith, and then other students who come alongside and say, um, we, we want to be in community with you, and it, it's just a really rich, fun experience. Sounds good. Is Treehouse the official title of the ministry? Yeah, Treehouse is the name. So when I started, it was called Aggie Lutherans, and mm-hmm. the students said, um, we're not all Aggies, and we're not all Lutherans, and we don't mm-hmm. want to be all Aggies and all Lutherans. So they, um, we had this whole campaign to rethink our name, and they said, um, there's two things about this ministry. One is that it challenges us, um, and one is that it feels, the other is that it feels like home. So Tree sort of mm-hmm. represented growth, and House represented home, so they liked Treehouse. Uh, so that became our name. And nice. it's sort of vague enough that people are like, oh, I could give that a try, you know. Right. So they do. Oh. Yeah. So it served us well. I feel like of, of most of the campus ministers, you do a lot of outreach to Blinn, too. We do, yeah. We're actually on three campuses. So we're mm-hmm. at Texas A&M, Blinn College here, and Bryan. And then we're also on Blinn campus, the Blinn campus in Brenham. Oh, wow. Um, so for the first six years, I was on all three campuses. Mm-hmm. And we said, no, 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 that's a little much. So we hired a new campus minister part-time who serves at Blinn and Brenham under Treehouse. So she, she reports to Treehouse. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so we have quite a few students that serve as interns on the campuses who do most of the outreach, mm-hmm. which is great. But that's great. It seems like the campus ministry is supposed to be fundamentally about meeting the students where they are, right? Yeah. But what I've observed with Treehouse um, under your leadership is it turning into a safe space, mm-hmm. no matter where it's held, that it's a very safe and inclusive space for the students. Yeah, we, tr- we try. Um, that is always a growing edge in college ministry because you always have new students coming in. We get students with um, all sorts of backgrounds. I mean, Lutherans are kind of big tent people who mm-hmm. pull in students who've grown up in all sorts of environments. Um, but we're really clear about who we are from the beginning. And, and we say, you don't need to be this also, um, but you do need to know that, that this is where we stand on on certain things. And, and because of that, we, we want it to be safe for everyone. Um, so you don't need to think like us, but you do need to respect that this is this is where this ministry comes comes down on certain right. things. And, and so students know that. And they say, well, I, I don't know that I agree with that, but, mm-hmm. but I want to be in this community. I want to see. So... So speaking of what Lutherans think about stuff, can you kind of give us a Lutheran 101 for folks who don't know the first thing about the Lutheran Church? 
Sure. So I am part of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is the largest group of Lutherans. Um, there's also the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and then there's also the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church, um, and then there's uh, other smaller groups. Um, so ours is the biggest group, and um, it is the most sort of moderate to uh, liberal leaning, on, particularly on social issues. Um, theologically, Lutherans tend to be... Um, actually fairly traditional. Um, so a lot of the questions that are, that are important in um, liberal theology, Lutherans, uh, Lutherans don't take up. But on social issues, we tend to um, uh, sort of lean more in a, in a liberal direction, at least the national church does. So local Lutheran churches might be different. Um, Lutherans have a huge emphasis on grace. It's the thing that we come back to every sermon. Um, we have a really low expectation of human beings. And so we say, um, we recognize that even even loved by God, we are screw-ups, and we'll continue to be screw-ups. <laughs> and every week we need to be told that we are That's loved. fantastic. Yeah, and it so, is. so I imagine for Lutherans, they're like, ah, oh, another sermon on love and grace and well, we still need to hear it. So I love '90s music, but I couldn't stand the Gin Blossoms. But they did have a great lyric in saying, "If you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down." Exactly. Mm. That's how we feel about humanity. There that, you go. That is like per- perfect. I think the Gin Blossoms were all Lutherans they, too. Yeah, it sounds about right. The LCA <laughs> Lutherans to boot. <laughs> wow, that's funny. Yep, a little trivial knowledge for you. Yeah, dropping that. Well, are you? Satisfied, fulfilled with the ministry here nearly eight years later? Uh, nearly seven years later, yeah. Nearly um, seven I years am. Later. It has surprised me. Um, I, did, I, I wasn't looking for campus ministry, and um, I wasn't quite sure where I would, uh, where I would end up. Mm-hmm. And so it came out of the blue. I wasn't involved in campus ministry as a student. I was intentionally not involved in <laughs> campus ministry as a student. Uh, so it's been a big surprise. But, um, yeah, it is a gift. And we'll talk a little bit more about... Um, as we continue to talk about sort of the specifics of it. But, um, yeah, it has surprised me with uh, what a gift it is to me, the flexibility of it. The, we do most of our work in faith formation, which is what I love. So I don't, I don't argue about the color of the carpet, which a lot of pastors and rabbis, <laughs> they take up these other types of arguments. And uh, in campus ministry, you get to just be with students, which is a great gift. So it's been great. Yeah. I'd love to talk with you more later about the faith formation piece, because mm. we do a, a midweek service that we call the midweek faith formation service, mm. where we're really getting to some of those core questions about our faith. I kind of think of it as confirmation for adults. That's great. You know? Yeah. But uh, would love to talk with you more about that. Sure. So we want to get into talking about clergy burnout. Um, and so we're going to start by looking at this story that I found from NPR mm-hmm. that they shared back in August of 2010. And when they shared the story, they started it out by saying, pastors, preachers, and all members of the clergy, we want to hear from you. And they asked, what don't we understand about your job? What has changed in the past 10 years? And then they had contact information. So that was seven years ago when they had that story. What has changed for us, you think, um, in the last 10 years? And more to the point, what can we say that that would help people's misconception <clears throat> excuse me misconceptions about what we do what do folks in general not understand you think Matt and Mindy about your job and what has changed in the last decade with what we do I don't know that I can I've only been in ministry less than a decade um, but I think what people don't realize is how varied the work is hmm. right and so um so each day, 
so my husband's an architect and he comes mm-hmm. home and, and he's been on a single project all day. Right. It's like, oh, what a luxury to be able to concentrate <laughs> on one thing. Like I do one thing every 10 minutes, right? right? And so, it, so clergy, we just have this huge range of things that we do in a day and some of them are deeply spiritual and some of them are not. Right. They're answering email and they're just the admin um, and it's fundraising, which mm-hmm. Matt and I do a lot of. Um, and yeah, so that's the thing that sort of stands out to me is I don't think most people, I, you know, there's the big joke, well, for um, Christian clergy, you know, you work on Sunday and then what do you do the rest right, of the week? Well, right. the rest of the week we do all the admin <laughs> that uh, that enables sort of these holy m- moments of worship. But um, yeah, I don't think most people realize just how many, uh, how task-oriented a pastor has to be, which, which is draining, which is not fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I jokingly said to someone who asked me what I did, I once said, oh, I answer email and I sign things. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> a late person tried to tell me one time, they said, you're a pastor, so you preach, teach, and administer the sacraments. It's like, About five okay. percent of the time. And, yeah. Right, and. <laughs> That's right. And, what and, else and. am I going to do? Right. Let me talk to you about that. For, I think one of the most significant things that's changed mm-hmm. um, that has made my job just as productive as it is challenging yeah. is the invention of the iPhone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, having the smartphone. Having that in my pocket is the uh, is a luxury and the bane of my existence yes. right. as a clergy person. Yep. Stacy, my spouse, tells me that whenever... The text message mm-hmm. uh, goes off, and I pull it out of my pocket. She looks at my face to be able to discern: okay, is our night completely uh, overturned, right. or can we proceed? Yeah, you know. Right. And the other one, and I, I know that I could turn this notification off, so whatever. But I have the Facebook Messenger huh. mm. notifications with this little ding right. sound. That sound. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Pepalovian response. Yeah, right. It's just, yeah, because it's it's from seldom, if ever, from uh, from my own church members, mm. and most often from other community members mm. asking uh, anything from "Can you serve on this right. panel?" to "I'm having a crisis of faith about this particular mm-hmm. topic. Do you have suggestions?" and everything in between. And it's not that I don't welcome them. It's just that not at midnight. It it, it, it happens right. It happens. Yeah. Any time. Right. Any time. Right. Yeah. I, I was going to say social media is the biggest change. And uh, the the need to to be out there and to, especially, I think, in campus ministry or maybe any kind of ministry, to, to recruit per, new parishioners and new members and get the message out there. It's, it involves a lot of work. And uh, in the past few weeks, not being at Hillel and not looking at Facebook and not looking at Twitter has been such a blessing mm, and yeah. looking forward to that as I, as I meditate on what's, what's, what my future looks like. Um, gotcha. Yeah. There's no turning off until you right. turn it off. But yeah. in the meantime, sort of even on yeah. your day off. And even, even going. the Sabbath, even my Shabbat right. was impacted by, the lack Things. of yeah, the lack of boundaries um, among students, especially, um, and you know, football game weekends, I think were were the worst around here mm-hmm. in terms of you know, especially since Hillel has this parking lot right across from Kyle Field. It's I would always be inundated with requests. Oh, can you please let me park? Can you please let me park? And interrupting my Shabbat with 
parking questions, mm -hmm. unfortunately. I appreciate it. I have to tell you, when you've told me, mm -hmm. uh, whenever I've reached out to you with questions about, you know, just minutia, yeah. and your response is, I'll, I'll respond to you after. After Shabbat. After yeah. Shabbat. Right. And, and it gave me perspective. Mm -hmm. I appreciated it because it was a firm boundary where I went, oh, okay, no yeah. problem. But I also appreciated it because it was an education for me where I sometimes hesitate to tell someone who mm. will ask me something on my day off, right. um, you know, it's my day off. I'll deal with this later. I'm going to have to get back to you later mm -hmm. for fear of it, you know, hurting their feelings or being inappropriate. Yeah. But sometimes, yeah. you know, as I heard it from you, it can be a really good education, you know, just kind of an awareness about if, if we can't lead by example about the right. importance of Sabbath, then we're kind of just talking. Yeah. Know? Yeah, and I love having 25 hours without without email, without having to respond to to anything. Mm. And um, and in the past few weeks, I've I've been I've been praying a lot more. I've been you know Jews have a three times a day prayer routine, um, and I wasn't able always to do that while I worked. And uh, now it's something I'm really focusing on, That's and right. it gives me structure and mindfulness in having these conversations with God. And with yeah. myself. Which is ironic that when we look, work as religious professionals, right. right, that's the first thing to go. Yeah, I had a teacher who said in seminary, you know, she, well, she actually said that she was able to pray a lot more once she became a congregational rabbi because they have daily prayer services that she had to attend and so, yeah. versus seminary. Um, but I was, I was pretty consistent and regular in seminary. And then once I started working, not as much. Yeah. So, Mindy, what do you do to disconnect well, um, so Friday, Saturday are my days off, and uh, I am really, actually really boundaried about them um, because I have my kids with me, and mm -hmm. so we don't pay for daycare on mm. Friday, so I have, a, I have a really easy way of saying, I can't, I have my kids. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I have learned to be very boundaried, um, and so... So one of my policies is I do two nights a week. That's it. Mm. Two ministry nights a week, Sunday and That's Thursday. Um, and outside of that, I, I say no, very gently, mm -hmm. um, but I say no. Um, I uh, will only do one thing at a time outside of, um, outside of our ministry. So right now I'm on a synod team um, and and that's that's the one thing that I'll do that is not related to to my day-to-day -day work. Um, and then I have I've been really intentional about cultivating groups that are not ministry people, um, people that don't ask me to be their clergy person, and who just let me be a part of the group. So I have one that's a uh, it's a feminist theology book club. We mostly drink wine. Occasionally we read a book. We mostly drink wine, and it's a mixture of ordained and lay women who we've been getting together. Every, every month for four years and um we just sit and talk about each other's mm -hmm. lives and and they don't ask me to they don't ask me to lead um i have another group that's young um moms who most of them work and they have small kids and we get together and talk about bad tv and uh silly stuff but but it's a way mm -hmm. to to sort of disconnect and they don't ask me to be their pastor either. Um, so I've been really intentional about building groups that um, allow me to not be on. Um, it's so easy to be on. And I talked to my students a good bit also about 
If you text me between 8.30 and 4.30, you will get a response Monday through Thursday. But if you text me after, if you text me between 4.30 and 10, you'll get a response the next day. And then I tell them, if you text me after 10 p.m., you'll get a response a week later because yep. passive-aggressively, I'm not going to respond to a text that late unless it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. If it's an emergency, you'll get a response. But if you just would like me to write a letter of recommendation right. and you text me at 2 a.m., you're not getting a you're not getting a response. Um, LOL. Yes. <laughs> so I so um, being really intentional about boundaries, about evenings, um, about groups that sort of nourish me. I, I get out of town once a month to see uh, a spiritual director in Austin who is phenomenal, um, and and just to be in another city one day a month. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all that stuff disconnects me from the the sort of day to day grind of email right. yeah the cultivating groups i love that you do that and it's it's difficult work to do because so much of it is uh you've got to dig deep yeah to make it happen mm-hmm. and what we do can be such a lonely gig right. one of the things that they don't teach you in seminary but it's one of the things outside of the curriculum that you do learn is you have to have friends outside of your flock. Mm-hmm. You have to have friends outside the congregation. And that's so much easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially when you're serving good people. Mm-hmm. And I love my folks. Right. And it's not a huge city. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's not a huge city. Um, so it's difficult to, to make friends. And you don't want to just do it out of obligation. Hey, friend, you know, and let's get, let's go have coffee so that we might establish a relationship. <laughs> right. It's just tough to do. You need to just have it happen. Yeah. But it's so important. I mean, it has everything to do with, with our health. One of the things that we talked about before um, you sat down with us, Mindy, is how people will perceive us. And you are uh, Pastor Mindy. I am Pastor Dan and, and Rabbi Matt. Mm-hmm. But we need to have people who can look at us in a different light, like you were mm-hmm. saying right. with your group where you, uh, I believe you said, drink books and read wine. <laughs> is that what <laughs> I, I said? No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fix it. That's just what I heard. That. That's, That's just nice. what I heard. But yeah, the friendships yeah. are really important. Yeah. I also, uh, the other thing I wanted to add is I had... My best continuing ed is this year I, I hired an executive coach, which I've never done before. Um, mm. And she made me be really, really intentional about my time. Um, and so she'd walk me through the day and she'd say, uh, where's your energy the highest? Where's your yeah. energy the lowest? What are you doing when your energy is the highest? You're doing email when your energy is the highest? Mm. That is not good. Um, and so she had me think about what what is the piece of my work that's right. really life-giving? What do I love? And is is my time of day matching that? And is my commitment matching that? Um, and, and if it's not, how do I reset my schedule? So she went through and created a different weekly schedule for me where, um, mm, that's great. It was really boundaried. And, uh, it, like, so she says, you get 30 minutes a day on email, you set an alarm. And if you don't get to 30 mm. minutes or if you don't get to all your email, uh, then you don't do email that day, but you no. get off your computer. Cause that's the thing that, that's the thing that sucks the life out of me is, right. is the admin piece. So. Do you think it's been helpful to you in terms of maintaining balance that you are a mom? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, there is a com- there is a compelling thing in my life that is stronger than the compellingness of ministry. Right. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I know that my son, who's three, at four o'clock, he mm-hmm. that's his that's his hour to cuddle. That's when he wants to sit in my lap and hear stories and talk about his day. I know that my daughter it's at mm-hmm. seven o'clock, um, and so no one gets that time. Right. No one gets four to about eight o'clock because. 
these are the sweet moments I get with my kids, and yeah. that's more important than anything. Uh, then that's more. That's the most important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, being a parent has forced me to pay attention to um, to really, really good boundaries. I think before I had kids, I was. Uh, I would say yes to everything yeah. because, well, because why not? Mm-hmm. You know, my evenings were my own, right. um, but it wouldn't have sustained me to keep mm-hmm. saying yes to everything. Uh, kids have been a, a great uh, forced rethinking of, mm-hmm. of my time and, and where it should be. So, yeah. So great. I think being a parent has made yeah. a huge difference. What about for you? And early in the show, I, I mentioned huh. saying yes to everything and how yeah. I got into that trap. And You I said yes was his default. Yeah. yeah, yes was my default because it's rewarding. It's fun to be needed. It's fun to be wanted, and that's it's compelling. Right. And uh, that's what brought me to this place. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, and this community, I think Matt was so eager to have you mm-hmm. and to have you in in churches and to have right. you as our speakers. And to, I mean, we invited you to do everything. Right. We ask you to do everything. Yeah. So it's not all on you. There's a. But I loved it. It's a lot <laughs> in our community. Yeah. I think we will know for the next um, the next rabbi for the next rabbi yeah. to to set some. I hope we'll know to yeah. set some limits. Yeah, with what we ask. That's great advice. Yeah. Something that we all have in common is is having children, and I think we would all agree that that <clears throat> certainly does affect our ministries in ways that can be really healthy and lift us up, but only to the extent that we pay attention to those precious moments that you just described. Yeah. Um. I had a colleague who was essentially run out of a congregation. Uh, he was having a very difficult time in his ministry, but he had a daughter. And um, in one of the town hall meetings, we'll call them, when things were kind of nearing the end, he said, uh, this church will have other pastors, but my daughter will only have one yeah. dad. Mm-hmm. And I, at that time, was not yet a parent, but that has stuck with me. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in also talking about clergy burnout, I I came across this article that appeared in a journal called Mental Health, Religion, and Culture. And the article is called Changes in Burnout Over the First 12 Months in Ministry, Links with Stress and Orientation to Ministry. And the abstract for it says, working in Christian ministry is, is stressful because it is focused on the intangible spirituality of people within a secularized society. Consequently, clergy are at risk of burnout. That's the argument. But then fast forwarding to the end, it says, the results support, in the study, of course, the results support a prediction from secularization theory that's for another podcast at another time, that the declining authority of ministers will have important consequences for their psychological health. So I wanted to talk about that for a second, the authority mm-hmm. of ministers. And I want to just open this up to all of us. Do you feel like you have authority as a minister? It's not something you can really measure. I mean, do you feel like you have authority? As a you, you wear a, you wear a collar often, Mindy. So, when do you are you treated any differently? I guess when you're publicly as a minister. 
Uh, yeah, people ask me if I'm a nun. <laughs> when, <I'm, laughs> when I wear a collar, that's my, my first question. I, I do think that this might be an interesting uh, conversation that we have. I do think that men and wear, women wear authority a little differently, and I, I think that's true within ministry, too. Um, I see my authority as the... Um, to, to be used for, for collaboration, right? Um, and so, uh, so I'll gather a leadership team and empower them, use my authority to empower them, and then I'll step back. Um, and it, if this is a student ministry, then, then, it needs to be, then it needs to be a student ministry. So I'm, I'm very willing to say, um, let me stand behind you. Let me push you. Um, and and um, let me give my authority away to you uh, Using sort of the um, using my authority to to hold you up as a person of authority, I would say this to a student, um, and, and then I get to step back. Um, and and I don't know if that's a more female way of leading, um, sort of sharing authority, not being not needing to be the one who is um, in charge. I think we're socialized really differently around this. Um, so it has its benefits and its drawbacks. I tend to step back from a public role. I don't want a large public role because I want to have a, a rich private life, and it and my personality can't hold both of those. So I step back from a from a public role um, so that I can sort of push others, especially students, into it. Um, I don't, but I don't know. How do you guys experience authority and, and use your authority? I think there's a older traditional model of the rabbi as being the authority, um, but I think that's declined, and I think my role as campus minister has been to be relatable to the students, too, and so trying to break down that, that extra wall, um, and I think that ties into just presence and social media presence as well, too. Um, and kind of trying to get rid of that that authority model to have rabbi as uncle or big brother type role model, especially in terms of campus ministry. Um, but I don't know. A couple of things come to mind in talking about differences in authority. Um, Reverend Lillian Daniel, she's a United Church of Christ pastor, and she... Her congregation posted a video recently where our good friends from uh, 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 Westboro Baptist came to visit, and there was someone standing outside of her congregation holding up just some hateful sign. But he was trying to rile up people so that they could get stuff on video of people getting riled up. And he was saying things to antagonize her. So uh, Reverend Daniel is out there extending a hand in friendship, saying, I'm glad that you're here. You've come a long way, this kind of a thing. And the person would not shake her hand and was saying, well, you know, you're not even, you're not even a real minister because you're a woman. Hmm. If you'd read your scriptures, you would know that you can't even be a woman. And that, of course, goes not only all over her, but all over her whole congregation who look at her as an authority, as an authority figure and... So and and it went all over me in watching it. So that's that's one extreme example of disrespect and that that relies on sapping authority. Another one in similar circles is talking about uh, well that clergy person's not a Bible believing mm-hmm. clergy person, 
And so it's putting people in boxes in order to either justify or dismiss their authority. So all of this for me, though, regardless of how people look at it in our culture wars and and different interpretations of Scripture, society now seems to be much more about authority coming from you earning it. You earn your authority. And the way that you earn your authority goes back to what we talked about before, Matt, is through relationships. Mm -hmm. You build up those relationships. Just like you're doing with the students, you can't do that empowering without building up trust with them. And so I haven't, I do come from a tradition that is, is faded and gone, in my opinion, of the minister being all powerful and untouchable Mm -hmm. and everything that he says, always a he in that generation goes. Um, So that is just in my rearview mirror from my perspective of what authority is. So I've stepped into this role from the get-go of understanding that your authority is only as deep as your level of commitment, how much you build relationships. But I'm also uh, not so naive as to think that me being male and straight doesn't also inform how it is that people look at me and ascribe authority to me as a minister. Mm -hmm. Quick story. I know I'm talking too much, but I did want to share this. So I went to... I don't want to share names because it's a local event, but I went to an event and um, there were clergy that were all gathered uh, and we all processed in as clergy. And there was one female clergy. And when we all processed in, the men all went up to the altar and the woman was escorted to the first pew. Mm -hmm. And me being slow in the moment went, why aren't you going up there? And uh, she looked at me and said, I don't think that I'm supposed to. And I literally was still too slow. And I went, huh, I don't understand, and looked up. And then I saw the ministers motioning for me to come up, but not her. And then I got it. And I went, well, then I'm not going to go up there. (laughs) And the two of us just sat on the first pew. And I don't mention that story to pat myself on the back, because like I said, in the moment, I was... (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't getting it. It was more of a hindsight thing. But I did know that if that, if my clergy colleague wasn't going to be able to go up there, then I wasn't going to go up there either. Yeah. Uh, but it, it still runs deep. It still runs deep. For sure, yeah. So that can affect our mental health, bringing us back to the clergy burnout piece. I don't know if you've ever experienced any of that kind of disrespect, either of you, that has affected your mental health, where people have crossed that kind of a boundary, um, saying something that you interpret as you don't matter, your voice is hollow, I don't know. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, almost continuously. Um, there's, you know, there's the, the old adage, two Jews, three opinions. And um, it's, uh, when I arrived, I you know, brought change and change is always difficult and uh there've always been been naysayers and especially in the past couple of years with my outspokenness on political or social issues uh all the more so it's uh it's hard to be a granola eating Birkenstock wearing crunchy liberal from California 
in uh, in College Station, Texas. Yeah, and I am aware that um, that male colleagues can do different things. So um, across the country, I have lots of campus ministry colleagues who will just sort of set up a booth and say, mm-hmm. you know, the pastor is in, and uh, the sort of sort of jokingly like peanuts um, right. thing, and uh, and then just put out chairs and say, come and talk to me. And uh, I had never tried that on this campus, right? right. The um, I don't get a lot of pushback directly for mm-hmm. being clergy, for being uh, a woman, but but my students hear it. Um, mm. They they hear it from their roommates. That's oh. where they get the put. That's where the pushback comes. Is they mm-hmm. say, well, you're, that's not a real pastor. And um, but I don't. I never hear it. Right? Mm. People don't say it to me. But I also don't put myself out in uh, in public spaces where I know it's it's just going to be antagonistic. It's not worth my mental health. Right? Yeah. I don't want to yeah. be at home at the end of the day. So mm. so we find other ways to be present that don't. Um, that don't set up a space for uh, that don't set up a space for that, you know. That's that's such healthy perspective, though, because yeah. I I wouldn't have been able to do that when I was starting in ministry. What what I'm saying is, um, it was when people would say stuff behind my back, mm-hmm. uh, and I would hear it that way. Whether it was true or not, I would assume that it was gospel, and take that to bed with me. And, and stay up all night and not yeah, get right. rest it, just because somebody may or may not have said something. Um, apples to oranges to the example you just shared. But what I'm saying is that if people said something to me directly, mm-hmm. I could deal with it. It was the stuff that happened hearsay that I let yeah. tear me down. Right. Yeah. The taking of stuff home is really, really hard when mm-hmm. it's when it feels personal and it feels like it's about you. Right. And then you take it home and you stew on it for days and then you've had a bad day and then you're snappy with your spouse and then everything, you know, like it's not, right. it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean you avoid it at all costs, but, you know, choosing what's worth mm-hmm. taking home is, is easier said than done. Yeah. So we don't have too much time left, but I did want to also look at a couple few statistics and these are some stats provided by the Fuller Institute, George Barna, and Pastoral Care, Pastoral Care Incorporated. And a few of them that, that I wanted to share with you guys just to see, is this something that is in your experience? Um, 33% of clergy that they polled state that being in the ministry is an outright hazard to their family. Have you experienced any of that? I see the potential for it. Um, I, I think I think what has helped me is that in seminary we were hyper trained around about, around boundaries because the generations of clergy that had gone before us had all had all burned out, mm. and so our seminary professors, especially yeah. our pastoral care folks, said you have to be hyper boundaryed and, and let great. no one tread on these. So. Yeah. Um, I, it would be really easy to be out four nights a week, five nights a mm-hmm. week. Um, that would be a huge hazard to my family. Yeah. But because I was able to save from the start and to the board um, two nights a week, that's my max. Yeah. Uh, that has sort of preserved that space. But what about for you, Matt? The four nights a week thing was my was my norm during the school year. Uh, yeah, three to four Friday nights, some other night. Yeah. And yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that statistic for me for sure. Right. Yeah. And I can see how it would be problematic, just like you were saying. Thankfully for me, in my experience, that has never been the case. Mm-hmm. I've got nothing but healthy, positive, life-building things to say about the community around my children. Mm-hmm. And also, for better or worse, I don't, I've never got the impression that people look at them as pastor's kids. Right. 
they're treated the same way as the other children that they're that they're friends with in this place. Yeah, yeah that's a so, good. Um, another one is uh, we already talked about seventy percent of clergy do not have someone they considered a close friend. Seventy mm. percent of pastors constantly fight depression. You hear about that in your circles, your clergy circles. Mm. I think I, I know a lot of clergy who are on some sort of medication. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty common, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think that I think that all clergy need regular therapy, <laughs> um, whether or not they experience any kind of mental health issues. You need someone who you can talk to and tell everything to. Yeah, and that, that doesn't necessarily shouldn't necessarily be your spouse or your partner. Right. It should be a, a professional. I think. I agree. One of the other things, just to kind of bring it home. Fifty percent of the ministers starting out will not last five years. Yay! You know, I'm looking. I'm looking at. I'm looking at these stats, and I'm going, man, they're just showing all of the grim, awful things. Are and one of the, yeah, I mean, and, and I asked Matt earlier if he would recommend being a rabbi to someone as a vocation. Um, and I mean, well, let me ask you the same thing. Would you recommend to someone to to be a minister? I would, but the, um, like the, the, gosh, the harping on boundaries and wellness and, and everything that in seminary you thought, oh, that's not, that's not relevant. I'll be okay. Um, like the super, like almost painful self-awareness, the realizing what is killing you, like all that stuff being in regular touch with your inner life. Um, I have a lot of students that are interested in ministry, and if they don't have an awareness of their inner life or uh, kind of a rich connection to the the dark parts of them, you know, if they still feel called to ministry, then I support it. But mm-hmm. um, I really, really encourage them to recognize the recognize the the depth within them, because if they can't be in conversation with that, then then they're not gonna. Yeah, they're gonna burn out right away. Right. That's yeah. great counsel. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's really right. Counsel. Like a good therapist, a mm-hmm. good spiritual director, someone that you can show your soul to right. all all of it without that isn't your spouse. That's a lot for a spouse to bear, right? right? Um, but someone who is professionally able to hold your soul <laughs> is really, really important, I think. Yeah. And I think that was one of the challenges for me is you know, being the the only liberal rabbi in town. Yeah, right. Um I I don't I don't have any peers. And so I'm, I'm a member of the Houston Rabbinic Association and attended their monthly meetings occasionally, but have no cohort of ministry peers, really. Yeah. Yeah, and that loneliness that comes from that right, without exactly. having someone that gets you. Right. As, yeah. That's tough. You feel like you have to pick and choose your words when you're in different circles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I made great friends with people like you guys, um, but still it's not... It's, it's somewhat the same language, but it's, it's also not. Well, the, kind of drawing this to a close, in doing, in doing a little bit of study about clergy burnout and trying to find these statistics and stories and stuff for us to talk about, it does focus on the negative. The negative is real, mm-hmm. but it is such a deep, incredible, fulfilling joy to be a clergy person. And one conference minister I remember told a room full of clergy from his experience, he was saying, we get to see people at their best mm-hmm. and at their worst. How cool is that? I mean, to get to just see people totally vulnerable in the best and worst possible ways. 
what vocations can typically do that that are also steeped in uh, in relationship, yeah. you know? Yeah, and um, I, I will say, I don't know if I just said this, but um, the spiritual director that I started to see uh, about after my sixth year, I started to feel really restless. So I was trying to figure out, why do I feel so restless? So, so that's when I started to see the spiritual director. And she said, um, she said burnout doesn't come from working too much. Um, she said it comes from not doing, not doing the stuff you really want to be doing, right? right? Yeah. Um, and I loved that, and I, mm. and I thought about that, and I thought, um, what is it that I really want to be doing? And, and it's that. It's the sitting in people's lives and, and hearing mm-hmm. about their stories and, and letting them, um, letting, being witness to their soul developing, right? That is such an honor and a joy, and no one gets to do that. Um, so I realized the more I'm able to make time for that, um, the more connected I feel, and, and, and it keeps sort of this burnout or this restlessness at bay um, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm able to prioritize that. But it's a hard thing because there's a lot of competing, uh, competing priorities. Oh. So. All right. Well, lots more we could, stay, we, we could say about this, um, but I'm glad that we're able to leave it on a much more positive note because that is what drew us together in the first place mm-hmm. as clergy peers and friends, people that I'm honored to call my friends. So, Mindy, thanks for being our, our last guest. Yeah, that's rough. The season finale. On the podcast, yeah, for the season finale. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, It'll good go down hear. in history. As the, Sponsored the, by Blue Baker. The episode with <laughs> Reverend Mindy Roll. Yeah. Sponsored by Blue Baker. Okay. Stick around. We're going to do uh, one last thing here on the show that Matt and I would like to share with you. Okay, Matt, it's been a good run. One of the things that we didn't get to talk about in the clergy burnout topic Mm -hmm. was how filling our cup and focusing on spiritual discipline is tantamount to continuing on as as clergy people from day to day and week to week. And one of the suggestions for that is to chant the Psalms. Mm -hmm. So we thought we would end our time together on the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast with chanting a psalm. Before we do, though, simply wanted to remind you all that the work continues. We had started this podcast as a way to generate good dialogue, to bring people together and talk about the things that will promote constructive change, not only in the Brazos Valley, but in the throughout the state and even the country. So uh, hopefully we've planted some seeds that you can continue to be talking about and putting into action. Um, surrounding ecumenical and, and interfaith dialogue and coalition building as well. It's been an honor talking with all of you, and uh, hopefully we can keep that good conversation going despite this podcast ending. Yeah, and I just want to thank the the great people of the Brazos Valley and Aggieland. It's, it's been an amazing four years here, and um, I've really fallen in love with this community and uh, wish, wish I were able to stay. Um, it is... It is traditional in the Jewish tradition to recite psalms to Hillam, as they're said. Um, a lot of people would carry psalm prayer books with them uh, so that when they have any free time, instead of looking at their phone, they'll, they'll recite psalms. So Psalm 23, I'm going to recite each verse in Hebrew, and Reverend Dan's going to translate into English. 
A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. 